The scripture reading for this morning comes from the last chapter in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when the message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord for us. Well, good morning, MCA. Uh, It's good to be together again. Uh, I'm excited for another opportunity to preach this morning. Uh, And today is a special day because today marks the end of our year-long journey through the book of Genesis. Uh, If you remember, we started working through Genesis all the way back in February, I believe. Uh, And we finally made it to the end here. Uh, We're at chapter 50. Um, So this study has been really encouraging and refreshing for me. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I would hear a lot of these stories from Genesis all the time, uh, right? Because most of Genesis is written in kind of this storytelling format. And so we'd hear these stories time and time again, uh, whether it's in in Sunday school or in uh, Bible storybooks. And so for me, I think... Uh, the temptation was to think that I already kind of know everything about Genesis, right? I can kind of graduate from Genesis um, because I know all this stuff. I feel like I know how this stuff goes. Uh, And yet, as we studied Genesis this year, there were so many themes and lessons that just kept popping out to me. And one of these themes that I just kept seeing over and over was this theme of God's sovereignty. So when we refer to God's sovereignty, we refer to this reality that God is is Lord of all creation. And as Lord, as the sovereign, he holds supreme authority over everything. And so he has the ability and the power and the right to exercise his rule. And so this reality of a sovereign God is displayed over and over again in Genesis, right? He displays over and over that he's going to accomplish his purposes. He's going to get done what he wants to get done because he is the Lord of all creation and because he is sovereign. So the scriptures affirm God's sovereignty, but what does that mean for us, right? Is that, is that merely just a fact that we're supposed to just accept and move on? Or is this a reality that has implications for the people of God? Is the reality that God is sovereign, 
Is that supposed to change my life somehow? Well, in the life of Joseph, it's, it's obvious that Joseph not only understood that God was sovereign, but he also understood the reality that God's sovereignty needed to affect the way that he lived. And so my hope for us today is that by examining the life of Joseph and examining his submission to God's sovereignty, uh, we might have a better understanding of, of God's sovereignty and what that means for us and how we live. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 50 today. Uh, so you can go ahead and open there. Uh, but before we look at the text, uh, I'd ask that we, uh, we pray and we ask the Lord for his help as we study his word. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have an opportunity now to hear you speak. I pray that you would stir our hearts. Lord, I pray that um, what I say would bring glory and honor to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you remember from weeks prior, right, Joseph has kind of been through the ringer in his lifetime. Uh, His life is less than ideal. Uh, His own brothers sold him into slavery. He's shipped off to Egypt. And while he's there, he's wrongfully accused of a crime that he didn't commit. And he's thrown in Egyptian prison. And yet... Despite these bad things that happen to Joseph, somehow God brings him through all these things so that he becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man, and he saves all of Egypt from a terrible famine. And eventually, as we talked about last week, Joseph's own brothers, they come to him, and they need his help, and Joseph in this big epic moment, he reveals to them that he's his brother, and then he cries, and he hugs them, and he saves them, and it it kind of feels like a a fairy tale ending, but the story is not quite over. So as we look here at the end of the book of Genesis, we see at the end of chapter 49, the death of Jacob. So after this whole ordeal with with Joseph's brothers and the famine, Jacob and his sons and the whole tribe of Israel had now kind of settled down in Egypt, and they've been living good, happy lives, right? The Bible says that they were fruitful and they multiplied greatly. And so everything, everything seems good for the family. But eventually, after, after 17 years, Jacob is really, really old, right? He's 147 years old. And so it's time for him to die. And so Jacob's dying wish is to be buried with his family in the land of Canaan, to be buried with his father and his grandfather, Isaac and Abraham. And so Jacob does this because he knows that while the the whole tribe of Israel was currently in Egypt, Egypt was not the end goal for, for, for Jacob. And so in faith, Jacob asks to be buried where he knows God will one day establish his descendants, right? He asks to be buried in the land of Canaan, the promised land. And so Jacob, eventually, he does pass away. And so the first part of chapter 50 speaks 
of Joseph and the whole tribe of Israel traveling to bury Jacob in the land of Canaan. And so they go and they take him there to Canaan and they mourn his death for seven days. And after they're done mourning, they return back to everyday life in Egypt. And so that's what's been happening in the first half of of chapter 50, which brings us up to verse 15, where we will begin reading. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. Verse 15 of chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. So Jacob has died, and his death awakens some uneasiness in Joseph's brothers. And they start to wonder if perhaps Jacob's death will be their undoing. They start to wonder if perhaps Joseph will want to kill them. You see, the brothers, even though they'd been living in Egypt peacefully for for many years at this point, they still have this guilty conscience towards what they did to their brother Joseph. And so I think it's likely that even though Joseph was nice to them and he treated them well, uh, in, in the back of their mind, these guys are still thinking, like, surely this guy is out to get us, right? Surely he's, he's out for revenge. And so this uneasiness that Joseph's brothers have comes to the surface uh, when, when Jacob dies. Uh, because the brothers know that, you know, Joseph and Jacob had a, a special relationship. And so they're starting to think, well, maybe up to this point, Joseph's just been, he's just been playing nice, right? Because he doesn't want to upset father. But, but now that Jacob has passed, right, Joseph, maybe he's, now he's, he's getting ready to bring the hammer down, right? He's, he's ready for vengeance, And so the brothers come to Joseph and they say, look, dad told us before he died that he wants you to forgive us for all the evil we did to you while we were younger. So the text doesn't explicitly say that the brothers made up this instruction they got from Jacob, Uh, but I seem, it seems pretty likely that that's probably what they did, right? The brothers are worried that Joseph is going to take revenge on them. Uh, and so they're trying to just, you know, beat him to the punch, get ahead of the issue, and make sure that Joseph knows that even though father's dead, uh, he would still want Joseph to forgive his brothers. And so uh, this is the brother's plea of, of, for mercy to, to Joseph. And so now we get to Joseph's response. And this is the part of the text that I, I'd really like to stay planted in this morning. And so, pay attention to Joseph's response to his brothers here. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came 
and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. And so Joseph responds to his brother's plea with incredible mercy and kindness. Right? Joseph, even, even after these many years had passed that his, his brothers had betrayed him, he would still seemingly, in a lot of our minds, have the right to execute judgment on his brothers, to, to bring about justice. And yet, instead, he responds with mercy. So how does Joseph do this? How does he overcome the temptation to take justice into his own hands? Well, I think Joseph's response demonstrates that the the reason he's able to act mercifully towards his brothers is because he understands the sovereignty of God. And so, so this is where the rubber meets the road, church, because we are called to be merciful, right? In Matthew, in chapter 5, Jesus, he gives us the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. And these Beatitudes are supposed to be the defining characteristics of the people of Christ's kingdom, which he came to establish here on the earth. And what does he say in verse 7? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And so mercy is supposed to be this defining characteristic for the church, for us. And unfortunately, I don't, I don't think that's always the case. And so my proposition for us today is that if we're to fulfill this call to be merciful, then we, like Joseph, We need to understand what it means for God to be sovereign. And so what I'd like to do with our remaining time is to consider Joseph's response. Because I think that we can actually replicate Joseph's line of reasoning in our own lives as we seek to show mercy to the people that we might not initially want to show mercy to. So let's, let's start working through Joseph's response here. So Joseph starts off by asking a question. He says, am I in the place of God? And obviously this is a rhetorical question, right? Because the obvious answer is no. But the question is important because it reminds us who we are. Right? If we want to show others mercy, I think this question is, is the starting point for that. I think one of, the, one of the biggest problems in the American church today is that many do not understand who God is. And because we don't understand who God is, we don't understand who we are. 
We don't understand how much greater he is than us. We don't understand that we are nothing. We're nothing compared to God. The youth right now, we've been, we've been learning about the attributes of God uh, on Sunday morning. And just last week, we learned about God's holiness. And we were watching this video, and it pointed out in the video that God's holiness is the only attribute that is raised to the third degree, right? That God is not just holy, but that he is holy, holy, holy. And this attribute of holiness is related to God's absolute moral purity and his separation from his creation. And that just goes to highlight how glorious God is. He's so far above everything we know. Our finite minds cannot comprehend the glory of an infinite God. But the mistake that many of us are making today is believing that, that God is like us. Right? We underestimate who God is, and we carry around these, these preconceived notions of what God should be like instead of letting Scripture shape our view of God. And suddenly, God is just this relatable guy in the sky that mysteriously agrees with all of our opinions. The preacher Paul Walker puts it like this. We live in a land that is rampant of the ignorance of God. They have no knowledge of God. We don't know who God is. We treat him as though he were some sort of Santa Claus or a buffoon of a grandfather. And we do not understand that he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. We don't really reserve the right to execute justice as we see fit. Because we're not God. There's a reason... God is the judge. It's because he's the perfect standard of moral goodness. He's the sovereign Lord of all the universe. But we are sinners. And apart from Christ, apart from Christ, we're nothing. So when somebody wrongs me, before before I just go and, and take justice into my own hands... I need to remember that I'm not the standard for justice. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So church, if we desire to be people of mercy as we're called to be, then the first step is understanding, like Joseph did, that we're not God. And so, instead of just taking justice into our own hands, we need to give it to a sovereign God who's much more capable to make a just judgment. So, let's keep working our way through, through Joseph's response here. So, Joseph starts, he asks, am I in the place of God? And then, Joseph, in verse 20, he makes this, incredibly profound statement about God's sovereignty. He says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. 
Now this line from Joseph cues us into one of the most amazing truths in Scripture, which is that God can use our pain and our suffering for our good and His glory. And, and this is one of the most amazing, incredible things, if we can really grasp it, right? It can, it can change our lives. And I, I know that sounds cliche, but it's true, right? Because most people, if they were in Joseph's position here, they would be incredibly bitter towards everybody. I mean, he's had to endure incredible suffering because of his brothers. But instead of taking vengeance on them, he's merciful. And why? It's because Joseph understood that God is sovereign. These these things didn't fall on Joseph because of bad luck. It wasn't some accident that Joseph went through what he did. It was part of God's plan. Isaiah 46 says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Joseph knew God. He knew that God was sovereign, and he knew that God loved him. And because Joseph understood those two things, that God was sovereign and that he loved him, he understood that he could trust God even in his suffering. Church, if we could, if we could fully understand and we could grasp those two things, those two realities, that God is sovereign and that he loves us, then no trial and no persecution that came our way would ever shake us if we truly grasped it. God is fully sovereign, and he's perfectly loving, even in our suffering. Romans eight twenty eight says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So church, do we believe that? I mean, do we really believe that even the hard things that we walk through in life are for our benefit if we're in Christ? Can we look at the people who mistreat us and make our lives difficult and understand that they are a part of God's good and perfect plan? Can we, can we even look at, at the suffering that's going on over in the Middle East right now? Can we look at that? And even in all that pain and suffering, can we still understand that that's still a part of God's good and perfect plan? It's, it's, it's hard to accept. But when I start to think that my plans would be better than God's. I have to go back to Joseph's question. Am I in the place of God? 
I'm not God, and so I don't know the full picture. But I trust him, and I know that he can turn evil to good. The perfect example of this is the story of Job. right? And as we know, Job, like Joseph, he, he faces incredible suffering. God strips everything away from him. He takes his family, he takes his property, his health. And Job is asking God, why, why do you allow these things to happen to me? Why, God? And so, at the end of the book of Job, we know that God appears to Job. And he answers Job's question. And what's interesting is that we as the readers, right, we, we know why the whole thing is happening. All right, we got to, at the beginning, we got to sit in on this conversation between Satan and God, where, where Satan requests to test Job. And so we know that this whole thing is really a test of Job's faithfulness. But notice, when, when God responds to Job, he doesn't even mention that whole thing. God responds, and this is what he says, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? So God answers Job by saying, I don't answer to you. He says, I will question you and you shall answer me. Right? It's not how this works, Job. I'm God, and you're not. Right? So you're not in a position to question my ways because you're not me. And then Job realizes that God is right, and his response is, okay, God, I'm going to shut up now. And so sometimes when we go to God, and we question why he permits evil, right? And why he doesn't bring about justice the way that we think that he should. Sometimes his answer is, I'm God, and you're not. My ways are higher than your ways. And so instead of complaining, you need to trust me. God has proven himself to us time and time again, and yet we forget and we think that we have the right to put him on trial. That's not how this works. And it's a hard thing to accept because it forces us to humble ourselves and recognize that we know so, so little, so little compared to God. We need to recognize this reality because it's what Scripture teaches. Because we, we should know that God's plan is perfect. 
and it's for our good and his glory. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. Joseph was able to be merciful because he understood his place before God and because he trusted God's sovereignty. Right? He knew that God was working out a greater plan than he could discern or understand. And that allowed Joseph to extend mercy to the people who had wronged him. So church, can we, can we put these things into practice? Can we take this understanding of God's sovereignty and put it into practice so that we can extend mercy even, those, even to those who deserve punishment? Can we trust God that his plans are good? <clears throat> and I know that that is not, it's not easy. <clears throat> and I know when we talk of the sovereignty of God, it can often make God to appear cold and distant, right? Like he's indifferent to our suffering. And so today, if that's you, if you think that the God of Scripture is far off and he's distant, I'd like to invite you to reflect on the story of Joseph as it fits into a larger, even grander narrative in Scripture. <clears throat> because the story of Joseph foreshadows the coming of one whose suffering wouldn't bring about just the end of suffering from a famine, but whose suffering would guarantee eternal salvation for God's people. When you're tempted to be frustrated with God, as you, as you look around at this world and you see the injustice, or your own life, and you see the injustice, if you're tempted to doubt that God can really bring about good from all the evil, that we see in the world today, then I'd ask that you first look at the cross of Christ. Look at the greatest injustice ever known to humanity. When we took the perfect, sinless Lamb of God, right, the author of life, and we killed him. That that is true injustice. But from that incredible evil came the greatest good. The salvation of humanity came through the death of Christ. Without Christ, we're sinners stand in guilty in front of a just judge. God would be perfectly just to send humanity to eternal destruction. Right? When you sin against a God of infinite goodness, then the just penalty 
is eternal destruction. Yet, on the cross, Christ bore the just penalty of our sin. And the life of infinite value was given in exchange for the infinite debt that we owed. Because of the cross, Christ's righteousness can be imputed to us so that when we stand before a holy, holy, holy God, we will not face condemnation for our sins. And so today, if you, if you seek salvation from your sin, then humble yourself, accept Christ as Lord, repent of your sins, and Christ will save you. God is able to bring about good from evil. And so church, if we want to be the people of mercy that we're called to be, then we have to believe that that is true. We have to believe that while we might suffer now, one day, God is going to bring about our salvation. So, then, church, let us be a people that are defined by mercy as we serve a sovereign Savior. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are humbled this morning as we look at you and we see that you are a God that is holy, 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 that is higher than us, that is grander than us, that is more glorious than us, Lord. We are humbled. Lord, I ask that as we see you as you truly are, as we see the the mercy that you've extended to us, Lord, I pray that in turn we might be a people of mercy. That as we go out into our places of work, into our homes, that we would be able to extend mercy because we trust that you are a just God who's in control. Lord, I pray that you would watch over us, give us strength, and help us to know that we don't do these things alone, but that we are empowered by your Holy Spirit and that we are supported by a family of God that loves us. Thank you, Lord. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.